Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks. You do not remain silent, but you speak through your word, you speak through your spirit, and you speak through your people. We ask as we gather together in the name of Jesus to be his people in this place, that you would speak your word to each one of us again today, knowing that you have not abandoned us or left us alone, but that you remain faithful and you have a call on our lives and you have a call on this church and that our best days are yet ahead because we know that even in eternity, God, we will never be separated from you. So we invite you now to have your way with us, speak to our hearts and to our minds, and send us from this place as Jesus' true disciples. We ask this in his name. Amen. When we uh, began the series a few weeks ago, we began by asking uh, whether or not we may have been waiting around for a, an encore experience of what church was before the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet perhaps we're also wondering if in order to redirect our hearts and our minds and our attention away from what has gone before and what we've experienced in the past, is it possible that what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today, to our church, to the church, is that Jesus has left the building? Meaning that show is over, but there's more ahead. Don't worry about what you've lost in the past. Pay attention to what God is bringing ahead. And in working our way through Matthew chapters 8 through 11, we've learned that contrary to what a, a professional religious person in Jesus' day might expect, Jesus was not building a religious school or a, an institution that would gather students to a place to do theoretical learning. No, Jesus was going out into the world, and those who would follow him, he was inviting to go on a journey with him, to be among the people, to bring the kingdom of God through power and presence and authority to the broken and the hurting and the needy and the marginalized and those to whom the world would have turned their back and said, they're not even worth your time. Now, in Jesus' day, this was something completely new. Those who would follow him, he said, shouldn't try to hold on to their religious traditions and the way we've always done it because something new was happening and he was there to announce the arrival of God in the world in a way that, that people had never experienced before. And so what we see being revealed by Jesus in his expanding ministry to these broken and these hurting people in the world is that each of his miracles becomes a sign that the Son of Man, which was his designation of himself, has come not only to treat the symptoms of our global sickness, but ultimately to heal the root cause of sin that underlies all of it. And then he calls on those who would follow him to join him in this mission of mercy and compassion to a lost and hurting world. And this is what we continue to see again today in chapter 9 as we witness the calling of the disciple named Matthew, who was a, a tax collector, who uh, not only said yes to following Jesus, but then uh, turned the heads of some of the professional religious people in Jesus' day to ask Jesus, what in the heck are you doing, Jesus? 
Picking up the story in verse 9 of chapter 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke, uh, Matthew is also called Levi. And Matthew was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, up to this point in the story, if you've been with us in the series so far, Jesus' miracles and his teachings on discipleship have emphasized his kingdom authority to be the one who is bringing in the kingdom of God into the world to fulfill the age-old promises of God to his people Israel. But Jesus' messianic mission has not unfolded as many would have expected. He didn't cater to the religious elite. Rather, he went and healed the sick and the hurting and the marginalized. He demonstrated that the authority of the kingdom has not come with military or political power, but with the power to overthrow the forces of evil and Satan's strongholds in the world and to bring healing to the very core issue of sin, as we said, that is really what underlies the whole of our human condition. And this unexpectedness of Jesus' mission, now what we see is it begins to elicit opposition from those who are the ones who consider themselves religious. People don't like to have their worldview rattled and challenged. They don't like to have to consider a new outlook on life. They, they have it all settled. They thought they knew what they were doing. They thought that things were under control. They thought that they had their eternal salvation assured, so there's really no more work to do. But then Jesus comes and he calls a local tax collector named Matthew. Now, taxes in the Roman Empire uh, were typically collected by uh, the highest bidders who would uh, be given a collection contract from the Roman government. And, and so these would often be local people who were employed as representatives of the Roman governing authorities. And, and not only would they collect the duties that were prescribed to them by Rome, but then they could add on any additional excises that they wanted to, and those would become their uh, commission. And so, as you can imagine, with human greed and nature the way it is, uh, a lot of these tax collectors uh, practiced excessive extortion in the process. 
So they were despised and hated by their own people, and tax collecting became a caricature of a, of a person with a, a greedy, self-seeking motivation. Now, we assume that Matthew would have likely had a tax booth, a, a little hut or a place that you would go to pay your taxes, uh, and it was probably somewhere near the lakeshore of Galilee that was on the outskirts of the town of Capernaum, uh, because there he would have been able to collect tolls uh, from the commercial traffic that was traveling through the area, as well as likely taxes for all the fish that were caught by the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And we know that Galilee was not a a rich place, and so the taxes there may have been a heavy toll on the people who are already living a difficult and challenging life. And so Matthew, while not likely not being very respected in the region, and most likely considered a traitor to his own people, is the one who Jesus comes to and says, follow me. Now, while we don't get any background on Jesus' relationship with Matthew, it's most likely that this call and Matthew's response comes as a result of a previous relationship that he had. Jesus uh, grew up in the area. He knew the people. It was a small town. He knew Matthew. Matthew knew Jesus. He had seen his ministry. He had watched what Jesus had done. He had probably even heard many of his teachings. But the simple fact of the story that Matthew himself wants us to get is that Jesus called and Matthew said yes, and he followed. Matthew not only follows Jesus, but he arranges a banquet. He throws a feast for all of his friends and his colleagues, and and he invites them to come to to meet Jesus at his own house. And his first response uh, to to being a, a disciple of Jesus is to want to share this good news with those that he cares about. Now, it's also important that we understand in the context of the story here that sharing table fellowship at this time was an important and social, uh, important social and religious institution that had uh, typical conventions that you were supposed to follow. There were clear boundaries that were established that delineated various rich religious and ethical obligations towards those who you could or could not sit at table with. And not only were tax collectors hated by the people, but they were considered ceremonially unclean because of their continual contact with Gentiles and that they typically worked on Sundays, I mean on Sabbath days. (laughs) Therefore, the Pharisees are shocked that Jesus is eating with them in the first place and also with these other known quote-unquote sinners. So Matthew's friends are not only tax collectors and traitors to their own people, but other Jews who lived outside of the law as the Pharisees interpreted it were also invited to this dinner. And in the minds of the Pharisees, for Jesus to share a meal with these types of people indicates not only that he's including them in his fellowship, but it suggests to him by simply associating with them, he's condoning their behavior. Do you think we may have to challenge ourselves in our day to ask who are we associating with and does our willingness to associate with people who are not like us or are different from us mean that we're necessarily condoning their behavior in order to share the good news of Jesus' love and mercy and grace? But Jesus, in an attempt to redefine their understanding of their own religious practices, he employs a metaphor, the metaphor of a doctor. 
saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, the Pharisees consider themselves to be righteous. They're religiously healthy before God because they have all of these laws that they practice and and they have these boxes that they can check. And if they check all the right boxes, they know that they are in good standing before God so they can feel good about their position in the relationship to God and they don't have to worry about anybody else because they've learned to define righteousness as its strict adherence to this religious law. But Jesus is trying to help them to see that they've become blind to their own real sinfulness in the process of using their religiosity as a mask for who they really are. So Jesus continues by quoting from Hosea 6, 6. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he drops the truth bomb. I have come, I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners. You see, in contrast to these self-righteous religious people, this motley crew of Matthew and his friends know that they can't avoid their sinfulness. There's nothing they can do to redeem themselves. And it's to these kinds of people that the good news message of Jesus becomes truly a message of God's mercy and his grace. This offer of salvation to sinners flies in the face of what the Pharisees thought God was about. And apart from their observance to religious law, it threatens the very understanding of the institution that the Pharisees thought that they were called to uphold for God. Now we can see a similar dynamic is happening in the followers of John the Baptist as well, right? The people who gathered around John the Baptist, who assumed that he was the prophet that was to come to usher in the kingdom of God and the messianic age, along with John, we know engaged in very strict religious spiritual disciplines, fasting and prayer and wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, all kinds of weird spiritual practices that they felt demonstrated their deep commitment and passion for God and his kingdom. So John's disciples wouldn't understand also why Jesus wouldn't also participate in these strict religious spiritual practices of fasting and pursuing prayer and teaching his disciples to do so as well, because that's what John had taught them. But then Jesus uses another metaphor, and he alludes himself to the bridegroom. Now, if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that in the Old Testament, it's God who is the bridegroom. It's Yahweh. You can look at passages like Isaiah 62.5 where it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And so Jesus essentially asked them, if God is here, if the bridegroom has shown up, if the kingdom of God is at hand, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn and fast while he's here? The arrival of the kingdom of heaven that that is this fulfillment of the long-awaited promise to Israel should be a time of rejoicing, like if you're at a wedding feast and you're you're witnessing the, the birth of a whole new relationship and the start of a new life for this young couple together. You ever been to a a wedding and have the joy and the excitement of that fresh new thing that is happening and you get to be a part of it? That's what Jesus is saying coming to faith in him should feel like. 
It should be worth celebrating. You should be wanting to throw a party. You should be wanting to invite all your friends to come. It's not appropriate to fast. Now, fasting will be appropriate again, he says, when Jesus is taken away, which we assume is foreshadowing his own death on the cross. But again, Jesus' point here is that he's marking a contrast in their understanding and their approach to spirituality. What does it mean for Jesus' disciples to be truly spiritual people? In the same way that righteousness is not guaranteed by a a strict adherence to religious laws, spiritual growth is not automatically assumed by ritual observance of certain spiritual disciplines. And then Jesus goes on to try and illustrate the difference in perspective on spiritual growth and these traditional practices by using two examples from everyday life, sowing and winemaking. Right? Jesus doesn't come just to patch up the old religious traditions. Instead, he offers a whole new garment. He offers a whole new wardrobe. Rather than traditional religious acts of righteousness, he offers real growth in understanding what true righteousness is really all about through discipleship in the kingdom of heaven. He's not simply come to shore up the traditional practices of the Jews. Rather, he's come to offer an entirely new approach to what it means to live in relationship to the living God. You see, new wine, he says, requires new wineskins. The new life of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brings can't be contained in the religious traditions of the past. New forms of life practice have to be emerged and and created uh, that are needed for this kingdom movement to happen. And these new practices have to accommodate the reality of this new life that we have in Christ. See, for Jesus, life in God's kingdom is an an entirely new proposition. It's it's like uh, getting rid of all of your old clothes and buying a whole new wardrobe that that, that allows you to to live into this new reality, that that puts you on the the right track, that, that has the outward form that matches the inward reality. In God's kingdom... If it's an entirely new reality, there have to be lifestyle practices that go along with demonstrating that reality in truth. Jesus is talking about discovering a whole new way of living. He's talking about a new style of life that we learn from being a part of the kingdom of God. He's talking about a kingdom lifestyle that is lived in following Jesus. You see, last week when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and he said that he did so in order to demonstrate that he had the authority to forgive sin, he's now calling Matthew and we see that the same authority and mission to forgive sin becomes expressed in a different kind of lifestyle than one might have expected to begin with. You see, Jesus is trying to help us to see that the motivation to practice our spirituality, to be good Christians, to go to church, to be a part of a religious community, is not to try and make ourselves righteous or pure before God. In fact, only the great physician can make us righteous and pure before God. But recognizing that in Jesus, that great physician has come, 
then we understand that we too have been invited to entrust the care of broken and needy people into the hands of that great physician. His mission is our mission. And therefore, our practice of our spirituality has to be to help to bring other people to the comforting care of the great physician. And if we're not sharing that good news and bringing people into the hands of the great physician, does all of our spiritual practice actually meet the the intended purpose for why God invited us to follow him in Christ? Even today, the great physician who has has not come to call the righteous, but sinners, right? That's who we are. We're not righteous. Yeah, we're in the church, but does that mean we've got it all figured out? Does that mean we don't need the grace of God anymore? Does that mean that that we can go through our lives knowing that we've got our ticket to heaven and not worry about what's happening in our neighbor's house or what's worries about what's happening in our community? And we don't have to be involved in bringing the good news message to those who haven't heard it yet? The great physician continues to come with a message of mercy and grace and a desire to bring healing and wholeness to a broken and a hurting world. Sin is not cured by religion. Sin is not cured by going to church. Sin is not cured by getting on your knees for 15 minutes every day and doing your devotional time. Sin is only cured by accepting the mercy and grace of God and allowing His grace to wash us clean of the sin that so easily entangles us. Yet we learn from Jesus that if we're not careful, our human focus on religious activity can actually serve to mask that we actually have a deeper sin problem that we're really not willing to acknowledge before God. As we put ourselves into God's hands and entrust ourselves into the care of Jesus as the great physician who knows our hearts better than we know ourselves, we see that these Pharisees' view of religion was that they could keep themselves religiously pure by keeping to the letter of the law. And in doing so, it forced them to not associate with the very people that God called his son to go and save. See, what they failed to recognize was that the very practice of their religion prevented them from living out the very intent and purpose that God had for them to begin with. The disciples of John the Baptist had a similar confusion about their practice of religion. They assumed that it was in following certain worship and prayer practices, like fasting, that Jesus would be able to demonstrate the depth of his commitment to God and the seriousness of his passion for God. That's what they were trying to do. But what they failed to see is that by focusing their passion on the personal practice of their worship before God, those very practices prevented them from understanding God's purpose for them to be a preparation for living out their faith in the world and for developing a compassion for others, not just for themselves. And so as we look at Jesus and his calling of Matthew, and we understand what he was inviting his disciples to consider and the path that he was calling them to walk, maybe some questions we can be asking ourselves in this day is, in what ways have we possibly allowed the way that we practice our religion to actually prevent us from living out God's intended purpose for us and for our church? 
Or maybe another way to ask it is, in what ways has our passion for church and our desire to demonstrate a true commitment to God through our worship and our prayer practices actually also prevented us from understanding that God's purpose for those practices was simply to prepare our hearts to be able to go out and share the good news with a lost and a hurting world and for developing a genuine compassion for those who need the good news of Jesus. What might we be willing to give up or let go of in order to discover a new sense of passion and power in our church if we are truly desire to be on mission with Jesus? You see, as Jesus came with his plan for deliverance and for healing, he almost immediately encountered opposition. And while I know that we would love to think of ourselves as being the, the, the true you know, cheerleaders for Jesus and being in his corner, I think we also have to look at the stories of these religious people in Jesus' day and not too quickly assume that we are so different from they are. And that when we too are challenged by Jesus to, to, to begin to live life in a new way or to do church in a new way, that, that there will be a resistance that comes up in us. Because it won't feel safe, or it won't feel comfortable, or it won't be clear, and, and we won't have a sense that we can control that, and that we can manage that. But, but Jesus says, no, that's, that's the whole point, is you've got to let go of dependence on yourself and on any religious system to save you, and you've got to fully be dependent on me. That's ultimately what it means to die to ourselves so that we can come alive to Christ as the master, as the one that we're following. Because if Jesus has left the building, then gosh darn, we better be leaving the building too. But that can be scary. And that can be hard, and we might not know how to do that, and we might not know what that means, and that's part of why we've been trying to gather every fourth Tuesday as disciples here at, the, at Faith Covenant Church to, to lean into one another to know that it's not something you have to do alone. That's what the church is about. God has gifted these people to be your partners, to be your friends, to be on the journey with Jesus. And we need to be leaning into one another and hearing from one another and encouraging each other on this journey because it is scary. And it is hard. And we don't know how to do it. And apart from the power of Christ at work in us, we don't have hope to figure this out. But Jesus demonstrated that religious practice simply for the purpose of practicing religion has no inherent value in God's eyes. Practicing religion for the purpose of practicing religion carries with it no spiritual power and no inherent value in the kingdom of God in any deeper significance than we're, we're somehow trying to make ourselves look righteous in God's eyes or in other people's eyes or maybe just even in our own eyes. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew in chapter 5, our responsibility to be salt and to be light in a, in a dark and an evil world, Jesus says, will not result in the, in the eradication of evil from the world. That's not our job. Our job is not to overcome evil. That's Jesus' job. But even though we continue to live in a world where evil persists and the consequences of sin remain, we know that the battle has already been won. 
That Jesus conquered the power of sin with the love and the compassion that he demonstrated through his sacrifice on the cross. That's the whole value and meaning for why Jesus gave his life, is that we don't have to save the world. That's why he came. And the reality is that in every age, humanity is dying without the touch of the great physician. And the question that Jesus asked for his disciples and the question that Jesus asked for his church is, do you care? Do we care that right now people are dying without the touch of the great physician? And the reality is that we are the ones in our age, in our time, in this corner of God's world who have been entrusted with the very gift that God has given for the healing of the nations. And that in us resides the cure for every ailing soul. And the compassion that Christ provides when we choose to allow him to transform our hearts and to see the world around us through his eyes is that it's the heart of Jesus in his disciples that motivates the mission of the church to bring this good news message to people where they live, not only with words, but with deeds that speak the language of love and mercy and grace and genuine care and help. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Brothers and sisters, if not us, then who? And if not now, win.